When TJ does the offering up here, I can just lip sync. It's great. <laughs> this text that we're going to hear at first blush seems a little grim. That's somewhat typical of Mark's gospel. Jesus' words here are often a little cryptic and a little ominous, as if he's privy to some threat that no one else can see. The conversations described here take place during the last days of Jesus' life, just before his impending death and resurrection. Jesus, stepping outside of the temple in Jerusalem after yet another long argument with its authorities, seems to be in a bad mood. He says that the temple, the center of Jewish life and faith in that time, is going to be destroyed. And Jesus carries on talking about false prophets and earthquakes and famines and wars that pit nation against nation. Destruction. But he ends his forecast on an optimistic note. So subtle that you might miss it if you're not paying attention. This destruction, he says, is the beginning of the birth pangs. Something new is being created. Jesus recognizes that some things need to be destroyed before a new creation can be born. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. Then Jesus asked him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will this be, and what will be the sign that all of these are about to be accomplished? Then Jesus began to say that to them, Beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is still to come. For a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. May they be in keeping always with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's talk about the weather. That's what people like to talk about, right? They like to talk about the weather. Looking out the window this week at the still white portrait, I thought of the beloved painter, Bob Ross. His approach to the season was so gentle. Oil paintings of Soaring, snowy mountains dotted with happy little trees. Oil paintings of frozen rivers that snake alongside icy forest paths. Birds mingling upon leafless branches and fallen leaves lying on the snow-laden pastures of a cozy little farmhouse. A little titanium white acrylic, a little Prussian blue. And Bob Ross could conjure up the beauty of winter on his canvas. But he could never conjure up the cold. 
Not the kind of cold that we've had here this week in the Midwest. It's been bad, folks. I think we all know that. Winter is not a cozy, pleasant little thing. Winter is a destroyer. In its icy grip, cuddly animals burrow beneath the ground in terror. Trees look like bones protruding through the flesh of the world. The 18th century poet William Blake once wrote this of winter. Lo, now the direful monster whose skin clings to his strong bones strides o'er the groaning rocks. He withers all in silence and in his hand unclothes the earth and freezes up frail life. Winter is cruel. It keepeth the children home from school. You think I'm making this up? Bob Ross was such a gentle soul. Even in his careful hands, winter was tame. He was a creator, an artist. But sadly, like winter itself, there are those who prefer to destroy rather than create. I knew a guy like that once, sort of a friend of a friend that ended up being the drummer in my old high school metal band. Let's call him Randall. Randall came from a pretty wealthy family that bought him whatever he wanted, so he didn't place much value in things. During band practice, which was at his house, he insisted on dedicating 20 minutes at least of every session to throwing appliances, furniture, whatever else he could find off of the second story deck of his house and watching it explode in the driveway, leaving the pavement littered with debris. As it turns out it was actually his neighbor's driveway, which uh, proved to be a point of no small controversy. But that's just the kind of inconsiderate guy Randall was. His penchant for breaking things was infectious, especially when you're playing in a heavy metal band. We'd take to trashing things on stage sometimes. Once our bassist smashed an acoustic guitar on his own head, banging it four, five, six times against his dome until it exploded in a shower of strings and splinters. It was glorious. But one day, one day all the fun and games came to a bitter end. I was driving with Randall in his cherry red BMW one afternoon when we passed an empty parking lot that was filled with geese. Watch this, he said, a little too excited, as he sped into the lot and began mowing those gentle creatures down. I sat in the passenger seat, utterly horrified, begging him to stop. I always thought he was kind of a jerk, honestly, but that moment I realized he was something more, maybe a total psychopath. Now, I didn't speak to Randall much after that, but I heard he went on to be a doctor. <laughs> a heart surgeon, I think. Scary, right? And I have to wonder, as a physician, how seriously he takes the Hippocratic Oath. 
to do no harm. Perhaps I was a little unfair in my treatment of winter. It's not as though winter intends to harm anyone. Winter's not evil. It's a, it's a force of nature. Dangerous, certainly, but a critical player in the cycle of creation. Winter comes, the land dies, and in the spring everything is born anew. Some things have to be destroyed before new things can be created. Nature is a wheel of death and rebirth, a cycle of seasons, destruction and creation inextricably intertwined. The Greeks imagined the myth of the phoenix, a bird that could live for 1,400 years before bursting into flames, and from the ashes a new creature would be born. Then there's Jesus, broken on the cross and risen three days later in glory. Death and rebirth, destruction and creation. Randall's problem wasn't that he broke things or destroyed things, it's that he destroyed them randomly, wantonly, indiscriminately, with violence and without purpose. It's not a matter of creation being good and destruction being bad. No, it's a question of what it is that we ought to be creating with our lives and what needs to be torn down to make room for that new creation. What magnificent buildings, Peter remarks, impressed with his first visit to Jerusalem. Not one stone will be left upon another, Jesus tells him. Everything will be torn down. Now, Jesus was a fine spiritual teacher, but a really depressing tour guide. Specifically, Jesus and the disciple in question here are talking about the temple in Jerusalem. So let's talk about the temple. Let's get a sense for what the temple was and what it signified. For these people at this time, it was the figurative axis mundi, the center of their world and their faith. It was built over a thousand years earlier by King Solomon. It was widely believed that God's spirit literally resided in its innermost sanctum, what they called the Holy of Holies, a place that was only accessible to the high priests. Now, the temple had already been destroyed once by the Babylonians in 586 BCE, and that was a traumatic event in ancient Israel. So Jesus' suggestion that it'll be torn down a second time is pretty controversial, pretty inflammatory, even offensive. But for Jesus, you have to understand, the temple had come to signify and represent a lot of terrible injustice. It had become the power center of the ruling elite, the Sadducee aristocracy, who collaborated with the Romans and willfully exploited the Jewish people for financial gain. You remember that poor widow who put her last penny in the temple treasury, the one that Jesus commended for her generosity? That penny went straight to the richest people in Jerusalem. Jesus' words about giving away all she had 
were a commendation of her generous spirit, it's true, but more so they were a condemnation of the institution that exploited her. Please don't take this as a commentary on our church's annual fundraising efforts. (laughs) Please give generously. Jesus had some serious issues with the temple, legitimate issues, and everything that it had come to stand for, rigid, antiquated, and elitist paradigm of religious practice and political power. Jesus didn't hate the temple and what it was supposed to be. Jesus was a Jew, remember. But he seemed to believe that the Sadducee authorities were commodifying and exploiting the Jewish people in their faith. He wasn't interested in literally destroying the building, but rather toppling the systemic injustice of the institution. And yet, about 40 years later, the building was literally destroyed, along with its power structure. The Sadducees' corruption and the Romans' oppression led to a Jewish revolt, and Rome responded by destroying the temple once and for all. This, again, was a terrible trauma for the Jews, and I want to take that very seriously. But in the wake of the temple's destruction, acts of creation unfolded. A new kind of Judaism arose, like a phoenix from the ashes, a decentralized, accessible faith that was rooted in synagogues, much like our churches, instead of this monolithic temple, a religion where community and spiritual practice came to replace animal sacrifice and exploitation of the poor. God no longer dwelled in a locked chamber in the middle of a temple, but in all of creation. Christianity emerged, too, as a kind of parallel movement in the first century. The temple, with all of its aristocracy and its own police force, was like a a towering wall that inhibited progress for Jews and Christians alike. But today, I can go enjoy a beer with the rabbi in Lombard, And that's a beautiful thing. So what are the temples in our world today, figuratively speaking, not literally, that need to be torn down? What are the cultural institutions that are so harmful, so toxic, that we can no longer abide them in good conscience? Start with sexism. There's one right there. Me Too movement has raised awareness of toxic masculinity in ways like never before. It's helped us all to, well, women have already known this, of course, but it's helped everyone to really come to terms with and recognize the ways in which men have denigrated women since forever, right? And unlike some men, I am confident enough in my own manliness that I don't need to shove it down everyone's throat. But this hyper-masculinity even infects the church. I got, a, I got a mailing this week. I get one of these every year from a, a, a men's conference. It's called Iron Sharpens Iron. And, uh, you know, it's this, <laughs> it's this faith-based men's conference. And I was reading this, standing in the office, I was reading this to Joyce, you know, our secretary in the office, and sort of talking about how absurd it was. And I, I saw that they had broken men of faith into three categories by age. 
There was, there was uh, you know, men from young age up until about 30. They called them emerging men. The, the older men, you know, 55 and above, those were seasoned men. And the rest of us in the middle where I found myself, those they call full throttle men. <laughs> so I'm standing here reading this and I, I, I express to Joyce perhaps a little too loudly, hey, I'm a full throttle man. <laughs> Just as another staff member walks in behind me, it didn't look good. Anyway, I think it's high time we rid ourselves of the idea that men are these, you know, powerful, uh, worthy creatures, more so than women. Shifting gears a little bit, racism. Let's talk about racism. Racism is alive and well. It's long perverted the fabric of our society. And today, some people are emboldened to commit brazen acts of hatred in broad daylight. Sure, you all heard about what happened this week to the actor, Jesse Smollett, not 30 miles from here, walking down the street, minding his own business when two goons come along and throw a noose around his neck and pour bleach on him while they're hurling racial and racist and, and homophobic epithets. Terrible, terrible thing. It's a high profile situation because Jesse's a bit of a celebrity, but people of color, I imagine, live in fear of this sort of thing every day of their lives. Racial superiority, that is a temple that's long overdue for demolition. Now, I don't want to wade too far into politics. That's about as healthy as wading into a swimming pool that a bunch of children have peed in. But nationalism, too, is deeply problematic. Not to be confused with more admirable expressions of patriotism, Nationalism fuels this misguided belief that we are better than everyone else, which makes people from other cultures, by definition, less worthy or valuable. This is part of what's going on at the border, you know? We have legitimate concerns about border security, which are legitimate concerns paired with a kind of flawed nationalism. The idea that those people are largely dangerous, filthy, violent, like some barbarian horde at the gates of Rome, and not hungry families fleeing war in need of help. These ideas are just a few of the antiquated structures that stand in the way of progress, that need to be torn down if we're to live fully into God's creation and Jesus' teachings. You'll never hear me advocating for physical violence or harm or destruction. Do no harm. But ideas that are harmful, ideologies and perspectives that treat people like the junk tossed off of Randall's second story deck or like the geese that he wantonly slaughtered, those kinds of ideas have no place in this world. I had the privilege this week of watching one such idea, a temple, an edifice of the old world, begin to crumble. I sat in the Glenbard West High School Library on Monday night, attending a meeting of their school board. Now, for the past three years, folks from this church, along with others, have been working to introduce more 
inclusive policies and procedures, specifically for transgender and gender nonconforming students in District 87. The church has lent them space to meet and organize, living into our own commitment as an open and affirming congregation. As I sat in the library, I watched some of our church members and others speak eloquently about the need for all students to feel loved and supported. I also spoke before the board, and I asked them two simple questions. What would fear do? And what would love do? The ensuing discussion among the board reflected those questions. Some members were fearful about what changing the policy might mean, that it might lead to litigation or angry parents. But other members spoke passionately about our changing world and the need to change alongside it for the sake of the students, for the sake of the future, for the sake of love. The vote that night was not final. It still needs to pass another round next month, but as a vote of confidence, the board overwhelmingly voted in favor of a more inclusive policy, five members to two. Sometimes creation depends on destruction, on demolishing walls that we might build bridges and roads to a better future. It's getting warmer now outside. The ice melts in the falling rain. Snowmen standing guard like frozen sentinels and soldiers of the old world will slowly crumble to the ground. The frost will retreat, revealing withered grass and broken sidewalks. But soon something green and lush will crawl through the cracks. Winter has destroyed the land, but spring and Easter is on its way. And I'm not talking about the weather. Amen.